You can live in New York for years and still get lost on your way to somewhere new. I'm in Brooklyn, down by the East River, just a couple of blocks north of the Williamsburg Bridge. And after a bunch of wrong turns, I think I've finally tracked down the warehouse that I've been looking for all night. right in front of the venue Villain, which is uh, apparently a new venue. I haven't been over here before, but I think they host events sometimes. Uh, I just heard about the event online. I thought I'd of course have to come down, you know? It's not often an event like this happens in the city. Amazing space, it looks really rad, and the festival is going to be really, really sick. We are at the Low Level Festival, the first one we've ever had, and we're just kind of hanging out before the show starts. In some ways, it's exactly how you'd imagine a New York warehouse rave. There's neon fashion, these bizarre clanging art installations, they're actually kind of cool, and an intimidatingly huge sound system. But the Low Level Festival is by no means your standard dance party. The theme of low level itself is sort of retro-futuristic and also sort of repurposing in a sense and taking stuff and making awesome things out of it, you know, stuff that was old or maybe thrown by the wayside, uh, turning it into something awesome. So there's a whole bunch of interactive arcade games, um, there's some flashing lights. One section is set up with the DJ station, but we're, I think everyone's waiting for them to start playing. But the crowd doesn't have to wait too long for the main event to begin. Good evening, Brooklyn. aka Bubblyfish takes to the stage. Behind her there are these glitchy vector projections that stretch from floor to ceiling against the back wall of the warehouse. There's argon lasers, a smoke machine, and down the front the glow stick kids are cutting shapes. All business as usual for a dance party. It's only when you focus on Hei Yun that you notice something out of the ordinary. Something that sets low level apart from other raids. You see, Hei Yun isn't hidden behind a set of turntables. She's not queuing samples off some sort of magical MIDI controller. This entire performance, all the music you're hearing, is being played on the Nintendo Game Boy that Hei Yun is holding in her hands. Thumbs flailing wildly as she dances around the stage. I'm Joel Werner, this is Some of All Parts, and today it's reporter Bell Smith with the story of Chiptune. And it's a story with a whole bunch of numbers at its heart. 8-bit music using just four sound channels on one iconic gaming device. But let's kick off with the basics. What even is chiptune? Chiptune is a form of minimalist electronic music that grew out of the first generation of home video game consoles and home computers. Essentially, it's music written on the sound chips that were at the heart of those ancient machines. Kenny McAlpine is a musician and composer at the Victorian College of the Arts. And according to him, there's no question that the 8-bit music composed on an old-school gaming console is the real deal. 
But chiptune's rise, kind of ironically, came at its own expense. It started to develop as a subculture after it became redundant as a tool for soundtracking video games. There was a generation of video game hardware which was very, very limited. But round about the late 1980s, the early 1990s, CD-ROM technology came along and that changed completely the character of video game music because all of a sudden you weren't reliant then on these sound chips to produce that bleepy music that sat in the background. Now, video game music could sound like any other kind of production music because if you could record it and produce it and stick it on a CD, you could put it in a game. So Chiptune moved underground and became part of something called the crack scene. It was this kind of illicit movement that was all about pirating games by snipping out a piece of copy protection code, then redistributing the cracked game on bulletin board systems. The pirates would often include a calling card, but remember, this is the days of dial-up internet, so these signatures had to be small. And Cheptune, because of its simplicity, lent itself perfectly to that. And so Chiptune took on this really kind of cool underground edge as a result. It was part of the digital underground. Around the same time, Nintendo released the Game Boy, which was bundled with a simple game that involved flipping falling blocks. The now iconic handheld device and game, which was, of course, Tetris, quickly became ubiquitous. Nintendo sold a million units in the US within its first few weeks on the market. Uh, you know, my mum used to play Tetris on, well, my Game Boy. But, you know, you could sit on a train and see everybody from kids to, to high court judges playing Tetris on a portable gaming device. And if you've ever played Tetris, I bet you have that repetitive little ditty playing in your head right now. I'm sorry. Anyway, that song wasn't written for the game. It's actually a Russian folk tune from the mid-19th century called Korobanyeki. That's Russian for peddlers, but Nintendo gave it the less fun title of Tetris Theme A. In 1992, an Italian house duo called the Game Boys released Tetris Theme A as a dance track. There wasn't much to it. It was essentially a sample of the tune with a backbeat. But it was an underground sensation. And the following year, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the theatre impresario and composer, released a Eurodance version as uh, an alter ego of himself as Dr. Spin. And again, that just took off. The last thing that really lifted Chiptune from the desktop and turned it into something else was the moment when someone looked at the Game Boy and didn't just see a video game console. They saw a portable handheld computer that could be co-opted and turned into a music production system. And I think that that man was a, a German called Oliver Vitchoff. Vitchov was a technology design student at a German technical university, and for his honours project, he hacked a Game Boy and turned it into a synthesizer. Now, at the time, he didn't have any electronic design experience, he didn't have any coding experience, and he taught himself to program, first of all, in BASIC on the Game Boy, which is a real feat, because if you think about it, the Game Boy only has one of those little D-pad controllers and a couple of buttons to play with. And so the idea of entering code was a bit like sending a text message on an early mobile phone. Remember when you had to stab the number buttons three at a time to cycle through to get the letter that you wanted. So it was very much that type of interface. So it was slow and it was frustrating, but from the moment he started, he was absolutely hooked. 
Vichov ended up writing code that he could put on a cartridge to slot into a Game Boy, turning it into a music composition device. And even though chiptune artists, or chip musicians, now make music on a whole raft of old consoles like Commodore 64s and Sega Mega Drives, Game Boys are still most popular. This is partly because they're pretty cheap and easy to find. There's around 118 million Game Boys in the world. But making music on a Game Boy is also relatively simple, thanks to software like Fitchov's, which he called Nanoloop. Hey! Alright, thanks. Chris Milray is one of Australia's better known chip musicians. Hello. G'day, how are you doing? Thank you. What's going on? Under the moniker Citrix, he's played festivals and raves around the world. But chip music doesn't pay the bills. By day, Chris is a video and audio producer. And as we walk into his studio, it's kind of like a cross between an office and a games console museum. Uh, yeah, there's uh, a bunch of machines here, uh, ranging over 20 years, and we can have a listen. Can we start with the Game Boy, please? I haven't touched a Game Boy in about a decade, or longer, I reckon. Can you just explain how you've got this all hooked up? So the Game Boy in this instance is a standard Game Boy, like you would find back in the day. In fact, hold on. I want to get a reaction from you. So Chris is just reaching into a cupboard, into a box. So did you have a fairly big sort of nostalgic link to Game Boy? Is that your yeah, point? look, I, I was one of those Tetris kids where I would see the Tetris blocks falling as I f fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. a thing I found out recently. It's the Tetris effect. Yeah. Want to uh, unbox one again? Oh, my God. <laughs> so I'll, I'll show you this because this is the original Game Boy. And we'll just unbox it here. Um, would you like to unbox it yourself? <laughs> like, we could swap roles. <laughs> Once I got over the original Game Boy in its original box with the original Tetris cartridge, we got to the business of making chip music. Um, so there is the original Tetris cart that shipped with it, as you were talking about before. And you can see that is the original yeah, Game Boy. that's it there. And this one looks a little different because we've done a few things to it to make it a little bit more user-friendly. For starters, we've scraped the mirror off the back of the screen and put a little bit of plastic with LEDs in it so it backlights it. So you can use it like on a bus or in bed or sitting on the couch where you don't have sunlight because the original Game Boy was a little tricky to see if you didn't have a lot of light. Second, we've added a couple of RCA outputs on it. So these are um, hi-fi outputs that give you much better quality sound than the headphone socket on the bottom. And this also just allows when you're playing through a big sound system to get the full spectrum of sound. It sounds a lot tighter without all of the ring and buzz that you get from the headphone socket. Chris fires up the Game Boy. Now, he's using a program called LSDJ, or Little Sound DJ. It's the same concept as Olivia Vitchov's Nano Loop and only takes a couple of seconds to appear. On the screen, there are a bunch of rows split into four columns. Think of these rows as beats. The columns map to the four channels of the sound card, which means the Game Boy can only make four sounds at any one time. If we take that, for instance, as a node, yep. if we want to make that a chord, we could start another channel and we could put the... Um... It's kind of the opposite to composing on, say, a guitar or piano, where you play notes, then jot them down. With the Game Boy, you write the music first, then hear what it sounds like. And we can press play on that. So that's two notes, but the problem is we're using two channels for that. So that we could then go and put the bass note in. Tapping away on the directional pad and buttons, Chris manoeuvres between channels, first adding those bleepy bloop notes. But 
the thing is, with this, if we wanted to start writing a melody, that's actually using all of the instruments. We've already run out of instruments. So if you want to start putting a melody over the top, like, you know... Like that. It's like, well, how do we actually make a chord to go with that? And one of the ways you can do that in chip music, doing something like that, which if we make it higher, you can start to hear. In fact, the higher it goes, the more defining of a chord it gets. When it's low, you can't really hear it. That's the, the tricks of human hearing. Um, if we crank it up there, we could make that sound, a, that to me sounds a little thick at the moment, so we could make it sound a little thinner by changing the what's called the pulse width, so it's a narrower um, blast of noise, and you'll hear now it's making that sound, and then we add them together. And we could add, a, for instance, an F chord if we're doing something super simple. So that's the F, you know, fundamental note, and then we could... Conveniently, the software lets you copy-paste blocks of notes, so you don't have to stick them all in one by one. And by just choosing the bits that are important and cycling between them along with about the right bass note, you can create all sorts of combinations of chords and things. But So you can hear with that, that's a little bit more complex. Turn the volume up because I'm using all these bloody volume tracks. So that's just one note at any one time. But you can hear, because we're using those tricks of playing lots of notes cycling together, we're getting something that sounds a bit like a chord. And if we add the melody to that... And then we add the bass note to that... And then the last thing we have is just a blast of noise. It is noise, but it's what we call pseudo-generated noise. So it's kind of noise, but you can hear it sort of at some point has a kind of pitch to it as well. And you try to pitch those noises so they're in tune with your track as well. That's another mathematical trick. You know, you end up with all these sort of chaos because of the maths in the way it's generating these sounds, but you try to incorporate that into the piece. Cool. The Game Boy is just one of a whole heap of retro consoles Chris uses to make music. Seeing them laid out on his desk, it's like being wrapped in a warm blanket of nostalgia. Chris started making chip music when he was only four years old on his dad's Commodore 64. But it's not nostalgia that drives Chris. It's getting these little machines to do things they were never supposed to do. This is probably a Game Boy like you've never heard before. Right. It's because, again, we're using this whole games console for just writing music. We're not thinking about, oh, do we need to have room for the sound effects or do we have room for the graphics or the gameplay? And it just happens to be, especially the Game Boy, a really good pocket vessel for writing music. And it's super fun because you've only got four channels. One of those channels is like, you know, noise. So if you listen to the noise channel... That's all it's doing. It's all it can do, you know. Then you've got that wave channel that's, like, doing that. Or in the case of when it sort of goes a bit more heavy. And then we've got the other two channels, which are doing this... Um, things like that. 
So yeah, it's cool. it's about just taking those four channels and doing as absolutely much as you can with them. And that's the fun of the Game Boy because you are limited by the four channels. It's a little bit like back in the old days of like, you know, Baroque music or, or whatever period you take from where you had like maybe a quartet or a, a trio in the case of this with a blast of noise as well. You're thinking of composing music just for something that can only play three notes at once. And so how do you describe chords? How do you describe melody with those voices? And there's all sorts of tricks that we can explore. Hi, I'm Warwick McLean. I've been making music under the alias Tom Fuller in the family jewellery for about five years now. And I've been making chip music for probably six or seven. Warwick is 22 years old. He wasn't born when the first Game Boys came out. In fact, he was in prep when Nintendo stopped making them. So to him, a Game Boy isn't first and foremost something to play games on. I actually bought my first Game Boy to make music with. I think what drew me to it at the time, I was into electronic music and I wanted to have hardware to make it with rather than on a laptop because it seems so much more real. And I stumbled across chip music and it seems like a much lower entry point in terms of cost and um, yeah, ease of accessibility, I guess. And I was drawn to the idea. It seemed outrageous. It seemed exciting and different and I picked up a Game Boy and I guess I haven't looked back. And it's the restrictions imposed by the Game Boy's four channels that keeps Warwick coming back for more. Obviously it's not really cutting edge technology anymore. It's very limited and the sounds you can make with it are limited by the hardware that was available at the time. And to push against that is quite a creative challenge, which most people say is the reason they're into this chip music. because. It makes you think about how you can do something in a different way um, and nothing else seems to really let you do that. The limitation is absolutely what excites me. The challenge of trying to create something that can really rock a dance floor and get a group of people going in a really fun way. So I'm less about the nostalgic sound and more about trying to make something that I consider to be dance music, you know, with these systems. If I'm writing very complex music in a modern setup that I spend like years writing tracks because there's so many opportunities. Whether with these little systems, you know, with that limited sound set, it's a lot easier to finish a track and actually create something and and say, well, that's that's my piece that I've created. And, and so that limitation uh, does make you finish tracks. With so many of these musicians being drawn to chiptune because of the limitations imposed by the old consoles, you might think they'd be purists, that they'd want their compositions to be created and played through a console and a console only. But for a lot of them, these devices are just another instrument to master and add to their ensemble. There are some people who like to keep it absolutely pure and have everything just generated by the waveform uh, generators that the machines are able to create. But as a general rule, little short samples and little snippets uh, that are from, you know, maybe uh, other bits of hardware that exist that have been converted across are accepted as part of the chip music sound. Because back in the day, I mean, they did use to sample drum machines and things and put them into the games. They just had them at a much lower sample rate a lot of the time because the gameplay needed to be smooth. Whether now we can up that sample rate a bit and get them sounding a little bit cleaner. <laughs> Not that much cleanup. You know, that thing of bringing in other instruments, uh, especially if it's in a live scenario, is very much, I guess, celebrated by anybody who is a, even a chip purist because they're going to say, oh, well, this is the fun of the additional live layering on top and wow, listen to the skill of what they've managed to do.
There's a particular artist who, for instance, you know, pretty famous for just hitting play on their Game Boy and then getting on a guitar and then just jamming out with their Game Boy. Hi, my name is Jam, aka Jamata, and I'm a chiptune musician from Melbourne, Australia. Like Chris, Jam's day job is as a video and audio producer. I grew up with a Game Boy. I'm from very much the Game Boy era. When I was a kid, I think must have been about seven or eight when it came out in 1989. And I remember my dad bought me a Game Boy for one of my birthdays. That one on my desk is actually the 1989 Game Boy. And um, yeah, I, I've just been playing it forever. And it never really occurred to me that the music was anything special or, you know, I just grew up with it. And it's just the sound that's in my head and I always loved it. And then when I found out people actually use the consoles to make music with it, I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I should get into that. The couple prerequisites I had was there has to be a Game Boy on stage, visible that people can hear, and it has to be making the music. No pre-recorded Game Boy. I, I want that live and on stage, you know, breaking down and making glitchy noises and, and all that. And because I play guitar, I wanted to be on stage with the guitar as well. So I built my show around those two things, yeah. And that distinctive 8-bit sound influences the rest of Jam's music. My music is hybrid, so it's half Game Boy, half just regular electronic stuff. But the Game Boy always sort of keeps a lid on things. I, I can't make things too polished. And I actually have to <laughs> make things sound a little bit crap to fit in with the Game Boy because otherwise it doesn't fit. It's the lead vocalist in this band, really. It's the voice and everything revolves around it. And that's how I build most of my music. I think there is something about the chiptune sound, that raw, geometric, lo-fi sound, which is very, very liberating. It's back to that idea that, you know, with the constraints comes this very raw sense of creativity. And in that sense, I think chiptune is almost like a child of punk. You know, it's a very DIY thing, and it's a very kind of egalitarian thing because anybody can pick up a Game Boy for next to nothing and they can get a hold of the software or they can use an emulator and they can sit down and in five minutes they can be making music. And there's something wonderful about that, you know, no barriers to access, just like with punk. And that idea that, you know, chiptune also has a, an awful lot of overlap with a, another subculture called circuit bending, which is where, you know, people open up old electronic devices and hack about with them almost randomly to see what happens. Um, and there is an element of that kind of modding and playing with the hardware as well. You know, people drill holes in Game Boys and, and do custom mods to have better digital to audio converters and, and, and things like that. And again, that speaks to me uh, an awful lot of the kind of DIY ethos of, of punk, you know, just getting out there and making it. And the lo-fi quality as well speaks to me of punk. So I think, again, this is just punk reimagined for an 8-bit digital generation. Perhaps the appeal of chiptune lies in nostalgia after all, but not a nostalgia for a time that's past, an era long gone but rather nostalgia for a simpler, more contained way of life. One where we weren't quite so spoilt for choice, but made it work anyway. A world where chips came in three or four flavours, phones made calls and sent text messages and didn't do a whole lot else. 
and social networks were built not on a constant onslaught jostling for precious scraps of attention, but on fleshy human interaction. Maybe chiptune is the digital music equivalent of that. One of the things I've noticed over the last few years is that when I open up uh, a digital audio workstation to, to make music, one of the first things I do is open up and create my session. And I could spend an hour, maybe two hours, just cycling through presets, choosing instruments, thinking about how I might process the sound. And this is before I've even got a note down uh, in the system. Two hours gone, just like that. Whereas with a Game Boy, you boot it up and you're absolutely ready to go. The sound palette is what it is. You've got no option then but to dive in and make. And there's something beautifully immediate about that. It's your job to set up the conditions through which that music might emerge. And I, I fell in love with that idea of emergent behaviours and different possibilities. And then I, I think from there on in, uh, you know, music and computers and chiptune and video games, it was all just exploring these different aspects, different sides to that idea of how music technology, mathematics, algorithmics, computer science, ideas, creative expression, how these things all meet together and how that perhaps changes the way we think about and use and experience music. Professor Kenny McAlpine speaking with science reporter Belle Smith, who brought this bleepy, bloopy story to life. Thanks, Belle. Kenny is a musician, composer and author of the book Bits and Pieces, A History of Chiptunes. Check it out if you want to learn more about the 8-bit scene. Belle also spoke with Chris Milray, Warwick McLean and Jam Nawaz. Their music featured throughout the entire show, as did that of chiptune artist Roll Music. To hear more of all their work, follow the links on our website. It's abc.net.au slash soap. Thanks also to Chris Kaiser and everyone at Low Level Festival for letting me wander around their rave with an audio recorder about five years ago to the day. You know, sometimes you just go out and record audio because your gut tells you to and you just trust that the story will come later. Well, this story came way later and I'm really glad that it's finally out in the world. Email me as well. Come on, it's always cool to see that bolded inbox letting me know that there's new messages waiting. The email address is soap at abc.net.au. I'll wait to hear from you soon. But for now, that's it. <laughs>